Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. In a recent episode, we spent 30 minutes talking about the Rolling Stones' Exile on Main Street, one of the great classic albums of the 1970s. And this was the first of an open-ended series of episodes where we're going to discuss albums that we really like, really important albums. We're not just going to pick some random records that no one knows. So today we're going to do our second, and it is Jethro Tull's Thick as a Brick, 1972. I will say right off the bat, arguably the best progressive rock album ever. Wow, quite a statement. (laughs) That is quite a statement. Well, it is, because it's more than... So it's the first, how can I say this? We're going to get into the history of this, which is actually kind of interesting, but it's the first full album, you know, two-side, long, you could call it a two-side suite, but they had to flip the record, so it couldn't just, you know, cut off and pick up on the second side. But it's the first two-side composition like that. There had been one-side pieces of music. In fact, I think it was 1971 on Pink Floyd's Metal, Echoes was about 23 minutes long. Didn't the Moody Blues do some orchestral thing that was sort of uh, well, was Days was of a, Future Past yeah, or something like that? It was a like concept that? album, but it wasn't the same where it was a, a continuous suite of songs. I suppose, yeah. The only other thing I can think of is The Who did a song called A Quick One While He's Away. They needed, they needed to fill some music on a record, and they came up with this uh, suite. That is essentially four or five songs. They wrote it in the studio. And that's about the closest until Tommy comes along. But then again, you've, that's a whole different sort of thing. So I suppose you are right that it is the, it is the first progressive rock, rock album that attempts to use the whole piece of media. Right. Because Tommy was designed as a sort of a rock opera. And as operas are, it has arias and... And, well, does, I don't think it had recitatives, did it, Tommy? I don't know, but I don't know. But it, it's not as, it doesn't use themes the exactly. same way right. that this does. Quadrophenia does, but Quadrophenia is later, and so. Yeah. But uh, uh, th- but this has themes in it. This. Yeah. So Thick as a Brick was released in March 1972. It was recorded in late 1971. And Ian Anderson has said, Many times, and I did a little bit of research here looking for this, that he never meant it to be serious. It was meant to be a bit of a joke. They were kind of influenced by Monty Python. And and when you, if you had the original record, as I did back in the day with the newspaper, it was all sort of satire and parody. What I find interesting is that Ian Anderson didn't really seem that much a fan of this record for many, many years. He would always say that, well, it wasn't serious. We were just trying to, you know, make fun of concept albums. Because by, by 1971, there had been a few concept albums, Days of Future Past, arguably Sgt. Pepper in some ways. There were others, but this was the first one it's it's kind of like, yeah, Doug's Doug's making faces. Go ahead, Doug. I'm just like, I I I don't think that. I don't think that he they attempted to make some great work. Uh, Aqualung had just happened. They did that. They toured Aqualung. They go, now what do we, now we got to do another Aqualung? What is the opposite that we can do from Aqualung? 
And the thing about doing an entire piece on a record, and maybe I shouldn't give this away too early, but there aren't going to be any songs, which means there aren't going to be any singles, which means... Exactly. As, well, there was one single. Right, but it was late. But, the, the first right. part. No, but the first part had a single right. in it. But the, the album was not conceived as a bunch of singles. The album was conceived as one long thing. So that necessarily means you're not going to have some songs, you're not going to have a hit single, you're not going to have radio airplay. The, the other side of that is that you don't need to come up with a bunch of intros. You don't need to come up with a bunch of hooks. You don't need to come up with any big finishes for a lot of songs. A lot of the things that they would have been required for eight, nine, ten individual songs, you could throw out the window. Now, let me tell you something, because I'm a musician and I've had to do some arranging. It's really simple to take one song and link it to another one. It's really, I mean, it's not, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's, it's simpler than it's easy to take a, a, a song fragment and say to a talented musician, make this flow to another one. And that's what they did. They used those ideas. Now, I'm not saying that the pieces that cement the songs are just thrown out. They're, they're really well done. And uh, John Evan, the keyboard player, did a lot of work on this album to, to work out as well as Martin Barr and Ian Anderson, too. But I, I just... To go back to what you said, I don't buy that the initial uh, concept of the album was to be anti-concept. I think it was just, it came out of laziness. <laughs> That's really where I see it. It seems like an awful lot of work for laziness. What, what you say about linking songs, when I listen to this album, I'm always struck by the development and the repetition of themes, the, 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 the really creative musicianship of linking songs, it, it, you say it's simple but not easy. I think it's not that simple because you're, you're, it's not just a key chain. You know, it, it's not like you're in a Eurovision contest and the third verse goes up a, a full step for a key change to make it sound like it's happier or something. Uh, in one interview, Ian Anderson said, it's only in recent times that I've appreciated how complex the music is. I was only 24 at the time we began to put this together. Yet there are so many weird time changes and musical innovations on the album. And that's another thing. If you listen to the time signature changes, if you listen to the, the, the instrumentation at times, ignore the strings coming back, but there are a lot of strange instruments that come in and out. I think musically it, it, it is a pinnacle of that period. Oh, I, I don't deny any of that. I, I think it's... Whenever I put it on, it's such a treat. I think my problem is when I, I start listening too critically and I, I listen to all those little things that come in between. And it's such a simple record, really. Um, the, the instrumentation, as diverse as it is, is very simple as it goes along. It's mostly acoustic guitar and organ. And then other things are laid down on top of it. It's... Uh, well, acoustic and electric yeah, guitar. It starts yeah. acoustic, but there's some heavy electric guitar. Really creative drumming and, and percussion. The one signature that seems to happen throughout the entire record is this. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Right? Yep. It starts with da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then yep. later on it goes da 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 But it's the same, that 6-8, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, that Marshall thing. All through it. Um, Which I, is not your standard rock time signature. No, it is not. No, it's not. Yeah. What you said, though, about there not being songs that you can cut out is quite interesting, because there was a single edit of the first part, 
And you could technically, what did the single edit have the beginning and the very ending? Because the ending is a sort of a reprise of the first, let's call it song in air quotes. I don't think the single was like that. I, I should have done my research. I don't remember, but you know what? There have been so many edits. There have been so yeah. many uh, radio edits. Because, I mean, you know, I've been on the radio. And, yeah. um, you know, I think the best ones were like seven or eight minutes long. And then there were live versions that they would do. They wouldn't always do the they, complete piece. Yeah, they, do they a, did live about 12 minutes, I think. I'll, I'll link to a YouTube video. And I think, now I don't remember if I saw Jethro Tull at Madison Square Garden or Radio City. But I might have seen this particular show. What I find interesting with all of the live videos of Jethro Tull, particularly the ones where he knows where the cameras are, like like shot in a BBC studio, is he is just like a pantomime villain up there with, you know, his funny leers and with his crazy hair and the way he kind of dances around strange. He was very theatrical. I mean, he still is. He's still alive. But th there was as much... And I don't remember this particularly when I saw him live, but there was as much of a show around the music as there was the music. And so initially, after this album came out, they would play the whole thing. Apparently, they would play the first side, then they'd do some comedy skits, and then they'd play the second side. Then they reduced it to, like, I think it's 12 or 13-minute version that goes through, you know, the best-known parts. Because they got tired of it, probably. You know, uh, well, it's a, it's a hard thing. It's exhausting to play. I mean, it is because you don't get breaks. Are, yeah, yeah, it's very difficult. And plus, it's all, as I said, it's all guitar and keyboard all through it. And flute. Um, yeah, there's flute in it. <laughs> oh, what did what did the um, somebody said? Um, oh, it's Crisco. Uh, Robert Crisco said the flute's good, but it has to be. <laughs> you know, it's like it's it's like he was not impressed with it. Um, I forgot exactly what he said, but that's kind of the sentiment as the typical Robert Crisco smarmy uh, critique. So here's what I find interesting. He formed a band in 1963, and he was playing vocals, harmonica, and I think he was playing guitar. He only picked up the flute because he realized that he'd never be as good on guitar as Eric Clapton. And in the Wikipedia article about him, it says, after some weeks of practice, he, could, he found he could play fairly well in a rock and blues style. I'm calling that fake news because this guy <laughs> plays the flute too well to not have had some classical training someplace. You don't learn to – with the, the kind of technique that maybe later he developed this technique, but he was an – he's still alive, sorry. He is an extremely good flautist. Um, I think – yeah, maybe so. I mean, if you listen to the first – the early tall where they are doing that blues folk stuff, you can hear how he's doing some simple things. Yeah, um, nothing is easy is a good yeah, example. Yeah, where it's just the kind of melody that you get on harmonica. Exactly, exactly right. It's an accessory sort of. He picked it up because it would be different than the harmonica. Although, uh, what's his name? John Mayall was doing stuff with flute and and things like that. So that brings me to an interesting question: How many flute players can you name who play in rock bands? Well, I can't name that many. Who's the guy that was in? Uh, ba ba da ba. Uh, can't you see the Outlaws? Is that the Outlaws? No. Marshall Tucker. Marshall Tucker, yeah. Marshall Tucker band. That's Jerry yeah. Eubanks. That's right. one of them. Uh, um, go on. Find a few uh, more. Uh, 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 the guy from uh, the guy from uh, 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 Train. Something Train. C Train. No. C Train. No. Don't don't know that one. Okay. Um, the only right. the only well, other guy I can I, think of is Herbie Mann. That's it. 
But that's I don't not know rock. Heavy he's jazz. He it's not rock, right? No. Okay. Well, I've got a list here. I'm going to just toss out some of them. King Crimson's had a couple of flute players: Mel Collins and Ian McDonald. The Guess Who, Burton Cummings. <laughs> I don't remember a flute in the Guess Who. You mentioned Marshall Tucker Band. Peter Gabriel. Do you know he played flute on a couple of the early okay. Genesis albums? Okay. I don't really. Uh, Vandergraaf Generator and Camel aren't really references for me. Chicago, obviously, Walter Parizader. Florian Schneider of Kraftwerk. Yeah, they used an acoustic uh, instrument on one of their albums. Yep. Ray Thomas of the Moody Blues and Ann Wilson of Heart. But it is a relatively uncommon instrument in rock music. And, and that, that, was, that was always one of the, the sort of attractions to Jethro Tull. It's a, it's a, it's a brilliant uh, a piece of stage work to have a guy out front who can, you know, he uses it as a baton, as a sword, or whatever else you need that's long and thin and cylindrical. Exactly, which he does quite often. There's a great, uh, if you want to see what they look like in the early days, there, on YouTube, there is two or three of their performances at Tanglewood in 1970, when there's no stage set up. It's like, just move the equipment out on the stage and play. That's it. And there's wires and cables and stands everywhere. And it's a, you get a really good sense of not only how music was, how rock music was presented back then, but how manic he was even back then. Yeah, yeah. That was the blues rock period before they sort of branched out into the folky stuff. Because that's the thing. On Thick as a Brick, you hear, and it's not the first time because there's a little bit on Aqualung as well, but you hear this sort of folk tinged music, which he would later go into a lot more with like songs from the wood later in the uh, in the 1970s. So we were talking last week about this and I was saying, you know, I just love the first side, but the second side, it just is like 10 minutes of, of just garbage in there that's filler. And I, when I played it back, I realized it's only about three minutes, but it feels like 10 minutes of all this sort of like the band breaking down and saying funny things and echoey stuff and all, and it's really only a few minutes, and then it comes back in with the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da with the acoustic guitar, with the same acoustic guitar but different melody as the opening bit. It, it, I, I, I just can't help but think of how wonderful a record this is, and the fact that he kind of played it down for so long until he finally realized, you know what, what if I made a sequel to Thick as a Brick? <laughs> and I, I don't know about you, but I've only listened to that once. I, I just don't think that there are some things you can't make sequels of. It's like The Godfather 3. It just really doesn't exist. I uh, I, I think he probably saw the, the milking uh, possibilities at some point, like as you suggest. But, you know, I've never liked the um, – I didn't like the newspaper that came with it. I didn't like the idea that – uh, little Milton there wrote the words to Thick as a Brick. It just never made sense to me. My my roommate in college had the album with the newspaper in it, so I was actually able to read it. I read it once, and it just didn't it didn't grab me. I, I I mean, I could see how they were trying to be funny and humorous and and with that sort of British humor, but it just it never grabbed me. And the idea that they tried to build this up as uh, uh, the myth behind the song, it's, it's the kid wrote the, the poem and it's a whatever caused a, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't even begin to understand what the, what it's supposed to be about. Well, as you say, it's very British and there were a lot of things that I didn't understand back in the seventies when I was listening to this record. Not, not that I didn't understand the, the concepts, but some of the, the, the expressions that were used, I didn't understand. Uh, in the show notes, I'll link to a website that has the entire newspaper scanned Pretty low quality. I couldn't find any place with a PDF. 
I only found one site which has it, but you can click on the different sections to get enlargements of it. So you can actually read them and it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. Looking back on it now, having seen these sort of local newspapers in England and, and understanding a lot more references, I understand where they're going and I understand the whole Monty Python-ish thing. I, I think the problem is that this isn't the audience for something like that. This is like, that kind of newspaper is something that people, it's for people who read The Private Eye. The Private Eye is a, sort of a magazine made on newsprint. A lot of it's politics. It's all satire. It's, a lot of it's very obscure. If you're not English, you can't understand it. I often ask my partner, what does this mean to understand? He has said that this is a satire or a parody of prog rock. And I'm not buying that either, because I don't know where the satire, no. where, what's, where's the satire? Where is it? What is it? Where's the irony? What's the, what is this? The well, in the sense that this really was the first really long piece, because something like Close to the Edge or Supper's Ready, they only came out after Thick as a Brick. Thick as a Brick came out in March 72, and Close to the Edge came out, I believe, in the end of the year, December 72. Supper's Ready came out on Foxtrot, that's Genesis, October 72, um, Pictures at Exhibition. It's funny. I think of those yeah. albums as older. I think of those albums as being older. Pictures that's at an really Exhibition strange. came out late 72, but that's not really a prog rock album. It's an adaptation of it's an adaptation of a suite of piano music. So it's not quite the same. The only long, as I said earlier, the only long piece that came out before that was Pink Floyd's Echoes on Metal in October 1971. But they, it's, it's like Thick as a Brick came out and all of a sudden the other band's like, oh, wow, if they can do a full album, we can do a full side. And it's interesting that Genesis and Yes didn't try to do full albums, although Yes did do Tales from Topographic Oceans, which were four full-sided pieces. It's that flipping the record over. I guess that maybe they thought that that takes the, the human too far away from what we're trying to achieve. And it's, it's too... Well, Although it works here. It works really well here. I like how they did it, where the tape kind of just speeds, slows down, and it's just that that ethereal weirdness. That, that's, that windy sound, yeah. But but then you get the few minutes on side two that are just filler and waste to, before it gets back and, and the drumming comes in and it gets serious That's again. true. There's a drum solo, and it's like, I don't know why that's necessary. Yeah, <laughs> but maybe because the drummer wanted to have a solo somewhere, and that's where they put filler. it. It's filler. I mean, you know, if you took, if you yeah, made a list of everything that's on a rock album or a prog rock album, all of those things are here, except as I said before, there's no beginning and endings, and there's no hooks, and there's no, you know, there's no single potential. Well, there are hooks, and they could have edited single. <laughs> no, versions. I mean, I mean singing hooks. I mean, you don't, yeah. you don't go down the street going, da 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 da. You know, there's no. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you do. I do. I mean, you yeah. go down the street going. I used to be able to hum the entire album. Sure, I don't remember all the lyrics anymore, but I remember most of them. You can probably do the basso continuo. Exactly. You could just but, sit there and go. But I can do the same for Supper's Ready and Close to the Edge, which were also two of my favorite songs. Back in the day, after the Seconds Out album came out, it was a live album by Genesis in late 1977, I bought a songbook for the album, and I used to sit around and just play all of Supper's Ready on my guitar with my terrible singing voice, imagining the sounds of the other instruments. Everybody did that. That's except the singing part. I don't know why you bother with that. Just well, because that's part of the song. 
Um, see, now that's the difference, because here we go with Thick as a Brick, which is the, the lyrics are a combination of satire and very serious stuff about class and, you know, the whole issues of, I think he said someplace about how intelligent children are treated and they're not educated and people trying to keep people in their place. I, I would say now, after seven and a half years in this country, everything in this country is about class. If the one theme, if there's one theme in England or most of the United Kingdom, it's class. But then you get to Peter Gabriel writing Supper's Ready, which is like all about, you know, the apocalypse in the Bible, or John Anderson writing Close to the Edge just after he'd been reading Lord of the Rings, which is all about, you know, fairies and, and forests and stuff. And I find that an interesting juxtaposition of the different styles here. Now, obviously, we're not talking, we're not going to talk about more recent prog rock. And we've, I'll put a couple of links in the show notes to episodes where we've had people talking about prog rock, where it's relatively common now to have these really long album length concept things and, but but this is a period where it was new, where, you know, we, we'd just gone from the single to the album, and pop music had just, like, gotten through the 60s with albums, and y here they were kind of perverting the album, taking it to its, like, taking it as far as it can go, that there's not, as you said, there's no songs other than the one single edit, and you don't just like, if you remember the LP, there were no, what do you call the bit between songs where you can see the grooves, there's fewer. Well, the, I, you know, I forgot what they call that, but it, the run out, not, it's not the run out the groove. End, so the, the bit between the songs where you can see there's fewer grooves, so you know to put the needle down. Well, this wasn't like it. It was continuous. One side, it was continuous. Each side was just, you know, grooves. Now, since they've released it, this wasn't the case of the first CD release. The first CD release was only two tracks, but now it's eight tracks if you go on the streaming services, and each individual track has a name, like the first one is Really Don't Mind slash See There a Son is Born. So that's the first two themes in the first track. You know, there's two reasons to do this. One is because it gives people some sort of navigational tool, but the other is because when people were streaming it when it was only two tracks, they were only getting paid for two tracks, and now they're getting paid for eight tracks when they stream the whole album. Yeah, I mean, there is, there's certainly, there are eight songs. I mean, if you, if you, I haven't really gone oh, through no, it. I know people that. have. If, you if think you, so? Yeah, because some of them, as I said, really don't mind slash See There a Son is Born. You can count that as two songs. Okay. So there are four tracks like that with two songs, so that's eight, and then there are four others. So you could say that there are 12 recognizable parts. And if you look at the lyrics, you can see kind yeah, of... Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. Um, but even so, it's a normal album. As I said earlier, if you just took, you know, a checklist of things that should be on an album, it's about 10, 12 songs. Little songs, actually. How many songs are on Aqualung? Aren't there like 10 or 11 songs on Aqualung? Yeah, there, there are some very short ones. songs, yeah. Uh, like Actually, like most of their albums uh, up until then. Yeah. There was a couple of little ones. Um... I, you know, it's really funny. Um, this really does seem very contemporary. The more I think about it, it seems like a very contemporary record. It sounds, re it's recorded so well. Yeah. Uh, and I think that part of that has to do with, I think, the way it had to be recorded because it, it, everything had to sound the same consistently because they were going to put, you know, stuff was recorded on different days and, uh, you know, it had to maintain the feel throughout the whole thing. So I, I think they kept it very simple. It's a good point. It's a lot harder to record something continuous and keep the same energy 
over a long period of time than it is a series of songs. Like you look at Dark Side of the Moon, which was also 72, right? Um, that's like, that's probably the, the sort of er concept album in prog rock as, as a concept. Um, but it's a bunch of different songs. So they're going to record one song for a few days and then another one. And you don't have that. You know, I was just thinking, you know, that uh, a podcast I had to edit a couple weeks ago, um, I found that part of my recording was done with my internal mic on my iMac instead of my normal microphone. So while I was editing, I had to listen to what I was doing and then just read the same thing to record it so it sounded good. And that's the kind of thing you need that continuity of hearing what you've done to the next thing and you're maintaining a sort of beyond the musicality you're maintaining an energy and and a, a sort of an impetus and i'd say for single songs over a few days that's possible but with a long suite like this and yes there are points where it breaks and you can sort of pinpoint the transitions which but even from a song to a transition to a song you've got a movement there that it's a lot more complicated than just a few beatles songs yeah it's it's actually surprising because um they i think did i read they spent a couple of weeks rehearsing which means messing around with the the arrangements and the songs and working the, the actual core songs out but then i don't think they actually got to seriously putting it all together until they got into the studio they couldn't you know, they'd have to record something and then see, or well, they'd have to, ha- I don't know, he'd have to have it written out, right? He'd have to say, yeah. And then they would have to start from, would they start from the beginning and go? I mean, I, I often wonder that too, because they only had what, 16 tracks? They didn't record digitally. They did this all with tape, which is another miracle. Uh, you say that as if it's a surprise that in the 70s they didn't have digital recordings. <laughs> I know, but I know I listen to things now and I think, well, they just did, the, and then you listen to how clean uh, the recordings actually is. So, you, it's fairly obvious they took great care in, in maintaining that continuity. The Wikipedia page on the record says some parts were recorded in a single take. I can believe that. I can too. That that I, I think this is this is actually a record that might, for some ways, be easier to record because the tone throughout the record is the same. You're not going from a boogie to a, a slow acoustic thing. It, there are changes in acoustic, electric, and and tempo, but. It, it's the same sort of tone throughout. So it might even be easier once they've gotten a couple things down, say, let's do the next one, and they could get it, you know, mostly in a single take. They were all good musicians. Um, oh, no question. Even though this was early in their career, this was their fourth album, I think? Fifth, fifth album. album. It was their yeah. fifth album, and it was also the first time with a new bass player, uh, Barrymore Barlow. Is that his name? Yeah. I yeah. get all the musicians mixed up. Um, yeah. So he replaced their original bass player. Um, and so he's really good on this. I yeah. mean, I, I, you know, I like to listen for bass and it's just really, really good on here. This it's, but uh, I don't know. I just, I, the bass is really getting the keyboard always impresses me. Keyboard, just the way it's all held together. Now, John Evan, I think was also an arranger. Wasn't he? Who's the other guy that was the string arranger? Palmer. Is that his name? The guy who does the string arrangements. Because there are, there's a small string ensemble that pops in every so often. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, only at the very end. I knew we were going to get down to the And then you get a sort of, there's that little orchestral bit. It's about 45 seconds a minute long. 
um, right. that comes in just before the final do 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 do, and then it kind of breaks into the climax and then back to the acoustic guitar. That's just brilliant orchestration when you think about I it. I think that's why I think that they had a good time putting it together in the studio more so than the prep work or the or the writing of yeah, it. Yeah, and I and I guess performing it later then. It's it's probably I mean it made sense for them to reduce it to like a twelve minute version because I'll bet it was a lot of fun to play like those first three times <laughs> and then after yeah. that they said I don't know if I don't know yeah we gotta yeah. shorten it up okay time for our next tracks sure so I was cooking bread last weekend and I go to Apple Music and Apple show me a record that I want to listen to and it showed me the Eagles live. Because I listen to Eagles records every now and then, I still think Hotel California is like the quintessential 70s rock song. Eagles Live, it's not bad, but I realized that this is the start of the decline of American civilization. <laughs> and there, there's two things going on. One is it's like the summit of the hedonism of this California cocaine-fueled rock. But the other is the Joe Walsh song, Life's Been Good. If, if you know that song, it's like, he says things like, I live in hotels, tear out the walls, I have my accountants pay for it all. My Maserati does 185, I lost my license, now I don't drive. And it's like, I am just, it's, you know, you see that in early, well, still hip-hop, you know, bling hip-hop. And But this was where it started, the Eagles and Joe Walsh. It's a good live album. And, and I think Joe Walsh is a great guitarist, but I was kind of surprised to realize that what really was a good band, but a banal band, really was at the beginning of the decline of American civilization. Doug, what about you? I'm going to go back and listen to uh, an album I mentioned during our conversation, and that is Quadrophenia by The Who, uh, supposedly their second opera after Tommy. I don't know if I consider... Quadrophenia to be an opera, but since rock operas are a thing, sure, why not? Um, it does tell a story about Jimmy and uh, his difficulty in trying to fit in with his parents and his friends and, and the fashions and the music and all of that stuff. And it's as a story, it's pretty good. As an opera, I don't think so. Now, one of the things that I've read about Quadrophenia is that uh, although it does have the four themes each theme represents a a personality of a member of the of the band the who um it it actually tells its story in a cinematic fashion and while it is a concept album i think he i've read that he bought pete townsend borrowed zappa's idea of creating an album that is a narrative in the, in much the same way that a film is and, and as if to put a finer point on it the album originally came with black and white pictures showing a fictional Jimmy in different scenes that were represented by songs uh, in the in the album. So that's why I'm not so sure it's as it's not as operatic as as Tommy is, but it, it's certainly a very cohesive and listenable classic rock album. I don't even like to throw classic rock around. I hate that expression, but this really is a classic rock album. Uh, just great songs are on it. Uh, Love, Rain, Or Me is probably the best known, but there's also 515. There's uh, Bellboy, and you may know The Real Me. Funny thing about this album is I only heard it uh, many years after it came out. I heard it in college, and a friend of mine had only one of the discs from the album, because when she left home to go to school, she and her sister argued over who got to keep the record. And so each of them kept the disc. And the only disc I knew for years was side three and four, which 
is probably the rockinest and best part of the album. But anyway, I've eventually heard the whole thing. It's great. If you haven't heard it, check it out. Kind of underrated these days, but it did really well when it came out. Quadrophenia by The Who is my next track. This was episode number 196 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Next Track Cast. And don't forget, you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, so your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. Thank you. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, we'll talk to you next time.